0: All right, this morning we are going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 14. So Mark 9, verse 14. And in this series, we have been considering the question, who is Jesus? On occasion, pointing out that this is one of the most important questions you can ask yourself. One of the most important questions you can spend your life and time investigating. As we close in on the end of the Gospel of Mark having moved into the second half, we start to see related concerns populate the text. No longer is he simply concerned with communicating who Jesus is, but in tandem with that, he wants to ask us questions about where our faith lies. And in fact, in this particular passage this morning, we are asked the question, "In what does your faith continually lie. This text challenges us with the notion that the most important thing about ourselves is where we put our hope and our trust, where we put our faith. And I don't want you to miss what's going to take place in this text, so let me tell you up front. We are going to see the disciples' arrogant self-reliance juxtaposed to a heart-sick father's helpless plea. In other words, we are going to see in this text the very difference between faithlessness and faith. We have, my dear brothers and sisters, in this text, a diagnostic for our own heart. We have seen and continue to see who Jesus is. And we are asked in this text, do we trust him more than we trust ourselves? So if you would... Open your scriptures and look with me at Mark 9, 14 through 32. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him the boy. And when the spirit saw him, that is Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again and crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And he entered the house, and the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And when they went on from there and passed through Galilee, they did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So as we get started, it's important to remember that this text is preceded immediately by the transfiguration. That Jesus is unveiling in part his true and divine nature. And he does so to three of his 12 disciples. It's quite clearly a moment of utter astonishment, of beauty, and of breathtaking glory. In fact, it's so clear, it's so effective that Peter does not want to leave this mountain. He's fine to let everything else be how it is if he and these two other disciples can be there on the mountain with Jesus for whatever time they have left. But unhappily, the three descend with Christ, for he has not accomplished his mission. And so coming away from this mountaintop experience, Jesus and these three disciples, as they reach the bottom of the mountain, see a crowd gathered about the nine disciples they had left behind. And this is where our text picks up, and right off the bat, the drama begins. This crowd, it appears, has gathered to witness an exorcism of a demon who has tormented a young boy since he was a small child. And the nine left behind are failing to cast this demon out. This has got to be embarrassing. Public failure always is. But actually, more than that, it's got to be confusing for the disciples were actually commissioned for this very purpose. Mark 3:13 through 15 says, "And he went up onto the mountain and he called to them those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed the 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons." More than just having this authority, these disciples have actually successfully done so before. Mark 6, verse 7, and verses 12 and 13 read as follows. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Verse 12, so when they went out and proclaimed that people should repent... And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So, from a narrative perspective, we see the drama of the moment. We see how these disciples, having done this before, set to work without Jesus. And so they crack their knuckles and give it a shot. But they find that past performance is no guarantee of present results. Something is going wrong for them, and it is going wrong publicly, these nine are unable to cast this demon out, a major embarrassment, and soon an argument erupts. Thankfully, Jesus shows up, and a portion of the crowd, seeing him, rushes over to Jesus. And upon questioning this crowd, a member of the crowd asserts himself, looking at verses 17 and 18. We see that this person is a father, that he has heard about Jesus. As such, when he heard Jesus was in the neighborhood, he set out to find him. Before apps like find a friend, he has to go searching and hunting. But he comes across the nine left behind disciples. And so, given his desperation, he settles for the B team. And as the B team is wont to do, they let him down. They are incapable of helping him and helping his son. The father, actually, as he talks to Jesus, closes with this comment, noting the failure of these nine disciples. And this then triggers Jesus' indictment of them. And so Jesus, in exasperated tones, says, oh, faithless generation." But who is this directed at? Who are the faithless ones here? Who is the audience of this particular charge? Is it the crowd? Maybe. But we actually don't know who all is in this crowd. Is it the Father? Well, we'll see in a minute how he does have some kind of struggle for faith and unbelief taking place within him. It's most likely, given the use of the word generation that he is directing this at everybody who can hear him. But, given the context of the failure, I believe he has directly in his crosshairs his nine disciples. The nine are the ones who have failed, and Jesus connects this failure with a lack of faith. It's important that we understand that this is this failure, not all failures. Every time we fail, it is not because we failed to believe. But in this particular instance, Jesus says that that failure shows a lack of faith. And one of the most beautiful, sorry, not beautiful, brutal questions in all the scriptures then uttered. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with Notice the emphatic repetition. This comes from a heart of deep emotion for Christ. Do you ever feel like you frustrate Jesus? Do you ever imagine God the Father looking down on you thinking, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Can you imagine Jesus looking at you and saying, Really? Come on. How long must I suffer with you? If you, as I do, by the way, feel like Jesus is frustrated with you at times, I want you to pay careful, careful attention to what takes place in this passage. Because I want you to see that what we often think frustrates Jesus is not actually what does. I want to make sure that if we're saying that Jesus is weary with us and our struggles for belief, I want you to see that he is not frustrated with us when we fail. Not in the midst of our struggles and stumbles in order to follow him. He isn't frustrated by failure. He is frustrated by faithlessness. Hebrews 11.6 tells us this quite clearly. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So when are we faithless? We'll fast forward a bit in our text and we will see that we are faithless most clearly when we are prayerless. Mark 9, 28 and 29. And when they entered the house his disciples asked him privately why could we not cast it out and he said to them this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer the clear implication of that close then is that they entered an attempt at exorcism prayerlessly can you even imagine Can you imagine encountering these spiritual forces of darkness arrayed against the people of God and you think, I've got this all by myself. The clear implication is that they were prayerless in their approach to this exorcism. And that is why they failed. Which logically means that their prayerlessness is a symptom of their faithlessness. And that is what Jesus is frustrated with in verse 19. J.I. Packer writes about prayer, and he says, We must learn to measure ourselves, not by our knowledge about God, not by our gifts and responsibilities in church, but by how we pray. What goes on in our hearts, many of us, I suspect, have no idea how impoverished we are at this level. Let us ask the Lord to show us. Why would Packer suggest that faith is the best barometer, or prayer is the best barometer of faith? Because prayer is the most accurate sign that you are relying on God rather than your own capabilities. Tim Keller writes that these disciples are trying to exercise the demon, but they have been trying to exercise it without praying. He adds, how arrogant, how clueless are they about their inadequacy to deal with the evil and suffering of the world. The disciples try prayerless exorcism for the same reason they could not understand why Jesus had to die. They did not see how weak and proud they were. And they underestimated the power of evil in the world and in themselves. When are we faithless? We are faithless when we are prayerless. We are faithless when we prayerlessly insist on our capabilities to handle the things of God. To do them under our power. So, church, pray. Pray for your spiritual growth because you need God for that. Pray for your non-Christian friends because only God will convert them. Pray for your marriage because Satan wants to attack it. Pray for your parenting and pray for your kids because the most spiritual exercise you can likely do in a given day is disciple the next generation. Pray for your work that you might do it to the glory of God. Pray for your rest that God would restore you each night depending upon him each day for His graces and His mercies. Pray for what burdens your heart, for the Spirit likely put it there, and pray for the requests of our church, because God is the one that brought us together. We have so much to pray for. I find it encouraging, then, what happens next as we look at prayerful faith in action. You see, as Jesus interacts with this boy's father, we see and are told of the extent of the grip this demon has over him. Look at the text and notice the things which this spirit of darkness can work and how Mark emphasizes the violence and the destruction of the demon. We are told that it convulses the boy, clarifying by adding how it, he fell and rolled about, even foaming at the mouth. We see that Jesus is distraught and concerned, We might even say taken aback to the point of asking how long the boy has had such experiences. Which, by the way, you should not read that verse as if it's some sort of cold medical questioning. Jesus is asking that because seeing the power of the demon, Jesus grows concerned for the state of the boy. He grieves what has taken place. And the father responds to that question by stating that it was from childhood or infancy. We don't know how old the boy is, and he doesn't tell us it in a number of years. He uses life stage terms, which means we should probably read this as this condition has spanned two parallel life stages. In other words, we might read this as this condition has afflicted him since he was a toddler and even now as a child. And so there are two distinctive stages in which this demon has affected this boy. And as well, the father explains how the demon particularly likes to manifest in strong ways in circumstances that would kill the boy. Near fire and near water. Seeking to burn or to drown. These are brutal and terrifying ways to die. And each of these emphasizes and is filled out by the father's words that the demon's intentions are to destroy this boy. That is the goal of all demonic work. Think about it. Why this boy? Was he special? Was he the next Messiah? No, it's the Messiah right in front of him. This boy is just a display of what Jesus says in John 10.10 that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. No reason for those is necessary and none is given. That is a demon's work, to steal, to kill, and destroy. And at this point, an important exchange takes place where we see the Father's faith at work. Jesus latches on to the conditional nature of what the Father has said, if you can help us, if. We should probably recognize two things right off the bat. First, the father began in faith. Remember, he sought Jesus out. Why? For the slight hope or the glimmer of trust, the little bit of faith that would say, maybe he can help. And second, the father is justifiably shaken in his faith. He has just witnessed nine disciples fail to cast this demon out. How would he know that Jesus can do it? Given that, it might feel that what Jesus says next is abrupt or even harsh. See, Christ challenges him. But notice what happens next. Verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. The cry, I believe, help my unbelief, is itself an act of faith. It asserts where his hope lies. I believe. Believe in what? Jesus' capabilities. He doesn't believe in belief itself. He doesn't believe in himself. He doesn't believe in some general or vague notion that everything will work out. He doesn't believe in the universe or karma or the force. He believes in the one standing in front of him. He believes in Jesus. And then he acknowledges His frailty, his struggle, his fallenness. Help my unbelief. How much do you think the Father believed? I ask because I occasionally hear things like if you only have enough faith, then whatever you ask, the healing or the desired miracle, you just have to believe enough. You just have to reach a certain level. Nonsense. One of the key insights of this text is it is not about how much faith you have. It is about the object in which you have placed your faith. You can have as much faith in yourself as you want, and it won't get that boy out. It won't get that demon away. It won't keep him from coming back. You can fill yourself all the way up with faith about you, faith about the universe, faith about humanity, faith about good things, those won't save you. It's not about how much faith. It is not about how sturdy your faith is or how unwavering your faith is. It is about where your faith is. The Gospel of Matthew telling this exact same story gives us a few more details. In Matthew 17, 19 through 20, it says this. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because your your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The grain of a mustard seed is tiny, insignificant. So what's the implication because I don't see a lot of geographic markers moving around. The implication is that you and I, our faith does not add up to much more than a mustard seed. But there is one in this passage who has enough faith to even raise the dead. We'll get to him in a minute. But what we see here is that this father believes and acknowledges his struggle. Such belief is given the state of his son and the experience of his future, his, his, this failure. Such faith is shaken, but it is still there. I don't know about you, but I often feel in certain circumstances and because of my past experiences, I feel my faith shaken. In fact, I think many people do. Which is why I think we love songs like Come Thou Fount. I and mean, think about these words. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. What are those lyrics but an admission that we believe? We have set our hope in Christ but that we still feel the pull of faithlessness. The draw of doubt still afflicts us. And so this hymn, this lyrical prayer, we ask in it that God captivate our hearts. We ask that he take them for himself, and in another stanza we pray, Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Here we ask God to show us his goodness in such a way that it acts as a fetter. For those of you who don't know what fetter is, it is a restraint, a handcuff, a shackle. And in doing so, it binds our wandering hearts. Come thou fount is a lyrical prayer that we believe, but that we need God's Spirit to help us in our unbelief. Allow me to say, if you have never heard this before, That it is okay to doubt. Some of the greatest theologians and preachers have struggled with doubt. Some of the most revered saints and servants have struggled with doubt. If you struggle with doubt, I plead with you to remember this. The most important thing is not what causes you to doubt. It is not the doubt itself, but it is where you look in the midst of the struggle. Like the boy's father, we need to train ourselves to make our first instinct with doubt to turn to Jesus. And practically speaking, we need to be patient with doubt in ourselves and in others. I find these two helpful reminders about doubt and patience to be good for me to reflect on regularly. First, remember this: the doubt is most intense at first contact doubt arises with a demanding fervor that makes assessing itself and its capabilities difficult but with reflection with acknowledgement that can settle and we can carefully consider why we believe and in what we doubt second remember the doubt do not need to respond, be responded to immediately. Some questions seem to require the immediacy of right now, but often they don't deserve it. And s- often a satisfying answer comes only with a slow dawning like the sun rather than the instant flick of a light switch. We have to await for the light to illuminate our experience and our past Scriptures and our present and our struggles. So let me tell you this if you struggle with doubt, make the cry of your heart, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That in and of itself is an act of faith. Don't let it escape your notice either that there is a pause in this text. It may only be momentary but it probably feels like an eternity while Jesus elicits this response of faith. Jesus draws faith out of this father by challenging him, if. He might do the same with us by provoking us, by questioning us, by reminding us, by critiquing us. But having elicited this response of faith from the father, Jesus commands the demon out and it relinquishes its grasp on the boy leaving the boy in a state that resembles death. But Jesus takes this boy's hand and he lifts him up, restoring him to life. <coughs> After Jesus dispatches the demon, the crowd disperses. The disciples seek to understand their failure, and in doing so, they help us see that this story is structured around contrast. The disciples are juxtaposed with the Father. <coughs> So let me just put a bow on something I said earlier. When do you frustrate Jesus? Not first and foremost when you fail and falter, but when you are proud. Pride leads to faithlessness. Faithlessness leads to prayerlessness. And prayerlessness will lead to spiritual failure. But humility, or to use the term that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount, the poor in spirit, Poverty in spirit leads to faith. When we acknowledge that we do not have the resources within ourselves, but that we rely on someone else, we see faith produced, and faith leads to prayer, and prayer leads to the will of God. This is no novel thought. In fact, it's stated so many times throughout Scripture that it's basically a truism. You could crack a biblical fortune cookie and find this in there. Psalm 138.6 for though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Proverbs 3: 34: "Toward the scorner he is scornful, but the humble he gives favor." Proverbs 29:23: "One's pride will bring him low, but he who is low in spirit will obtain honor." Matthew 12 23:12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 1.52 He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. James 4.6 But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5.5 Likewise, you who are hungry, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, in our, pro- in our previous two sermons, we saw an immense low. I mean, think about being called Satan by Jesus. That's got to be discouraging. But that's followed by this immense high, Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus unveils his glory. Peter doesn't want to leave the mountain. Well, not quite so extreme, we see similar peak and a similar valley in this text. You see, the disciples have been humbled. And in their humility, they are able to ask Jesus what happened. I think we should actually commend this question. Asking questions is critical to discipleship. It is critical to following Jesus and understanding. And asking questions quells our pride. We have to admit we do not know why things happen. We do not know why we fail. And so having admitted that they don't know, they ask an honest question. In fact, in Mark 4, we see that Jesus lays out some notes on authentic discipleship in parable form. And if you look at verse 10 in Mark chapter 4, we see the difference between those who get it, what Jesus said about discipleship, and those who don't, is whether or not they came up to him and asked him. After having told the parable of the soils, we read in Mark 4.10, And when he was alone with those around him, with the twelve, asked him about the parable. In the next verse, Jesus responds, And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. What's the difference? Those outside walked away. Those who received the secret were humble enough to ask and to seek understanding. See how the humility of an honest question shows us the potential of our discipleship. Here, too, the disciples are able to learn and grow because they sought to learn why they failed. And it's important to realize where they inquired. They didn't ask of some self-help source. They didn't ask of something that would be overly affirming. They took a big risk. The disciples asked Jesus, the word of God incarnate, the way, the truth, and the life. They asked someone who can see the reality of their souls, what is hidden even from themselves. And they asked the one who perceives thoughts and reads minds. Practically speaking, husbands, have you ever asked your wives for an honest appraisal of yourself? Wives, have you ever asked your husband how you're doing as a helper? If you have, then you know what this was probably like, to go up to the one person who can give you honest, straightforward, blunt feedback. And if you haven't, I understand. Because asking a question like this requires a vulnerability. You know, the word vulnerable comes from the Latin root, vulnus, which means to wound. In order to be vulnerable, you need to open yourself up to be wounded. You need to take your armor off. The disciples do that here. In order to seek to grow and to understand, they take off their armor, and they ask Jesus why they failed. And they do so because they know that growing in Christ's likeness is more important than emotional safety for them. And probably they do this because they know and let us never forget that Christ himself is gentle and lowly. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just think about the compassion of Christ in the story of Mark 9 before us. A father struggling in his faith because his beloved boy is harassed by a demon. Matthew 12:20 A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench out until he brings justice to victory. You see, when we forget the gentleness of Jesus, we end up like the disciples just a few verses after. Following this account, we have a brief interaction between Jesus and the disciples. And in that moment, Jesus is teaching the disciples about the resurrection and they are confused. And we read, For he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He will be, uh, they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. And they were, you could insert the word tragically here, afraid to ask. See how the fear of Jesus here leads them to not ask. And in that very moment, their discipleship stalls out. Pride gets a hold of them again. Jesus has put the very essence of the gospel in front of them. Having lived a perfect life, he tells them that he must die and rise again because he is the messianic king who came to defeat sin and death. And they're confused, which is not wrong to be confused. But they fail to seek understanding. As I see myself and these disciples, I feel it necessary to acknowledge this. The disciples are prideful. And they are prideful because they are in process. They must continually seek and answer the question, who is Jesus, in order to progress in their discipleship and in order to slay their own pride. And I hope we have the humility to ask Christ to forgive and to seek to understand why we fail. What would Christ have said, after all, if they asked him? I think something like this. You wonder what it means that the Son of Man will be delivered, killed, and rise. Well, it means exactly what I have said. For you know that the Son of Man is a term I use for myself. I have spoken to you and I have shown you many times my power. My power over life and over death. Think about what you have just seen. Did not that boy appear as dead to you? And yet when I took his hand and I lifted him up, was he not alive? Though he only seemed as dead, do not forget Jairus. His daughter was surely dead. And yet I took her hand, that cold, clammy hand, and in the moment I said to her, Talithia cumi, Her heart began once again to beat. Her blood began once again to flow. Her mind and consciousness was once again awake and alive. I know understanding such things is hard. But I am the way to God. I am the truth that has organized this world. I am the life everlasting. And though demons like this one can do violence to boys like that, he might conclude with these words. Though they have come to steal, kill, and destroy, I have come. That you might have life and have it to the full. I think you might have said something like that had they the humility to ask. So we should have the humility to ask. Do we frustrate Jesus with our faithlessness? We might have the humility to ask, where are we failing to trust in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection? We might have the humility to go to him in prayer, to repent of our pride, and to turn all of our pursuits over to him.